KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. Just how big was the youth vote in the midterm elections? Based on the numbers, pretty important. One study said 27% of voters under 30 hit the polls in November, second highest youth turnout in over three decades. As much as we don't like to think it's the case, fear and anger and desire for revenge are much better motivators than hope and optimism and love and idealism. Ben Berger is an associate professor of political science at Swarthmore College, also the executive director of Swarthmore's Lang Center for Civic and Social Responsibility. He was part of a nonpartisan effort to help students get out the vote about issues that mattered to them in the midterms. There's no question that abortion was the primary one, and I would say also concern about climate change. But what does the strong youth turnout this year mean for future elections, especially for Republicans? The young voters today are going to be somewhat older in a little bit. One question is, will they get more conservative, as often happens? I'm Matt Leon, and today on KYW News Radio In-Depth, a closer look at the youth turnout in 2022 and what both parties have to do to get and keep young voters moving forward. I know specifically you do work trying to get college students get the vote out. What? did you hear this year? Did it feel different? Did there seem to be more intensity, less intensity, like on the ground in your role at Swarthmore? What were you hearing? Yeah, we have a get out to vote committee, just like a lot of schools do. It's nonpartisan. It just tries to spread information about the voting process and what students need to do to be able to register and then actually go and cast votes no matter how they cast them. And I think that's pretty common now at a lot of a lot of colleges and universities. And it definitely felt different from 2018, when there was a sense of great urgency and even kind of anger on students' part, a desire to get out and get to the polls. I think that was in part because students understood that they, whether they themselves or the, the people there two years before them, had not voted in expected levels and in some ways bore some perhaps responsibility for an outcome that they didn't like which was Donald Trump getting elected. That is to say, that's that was the case amongst Worthmore students. And so in 2018, they were just chomping at the bit to get in there and get out and vote. And that didn't seem to be present this year. But there was great receptiveness to the messages about information. The students were peppered, bombarded, papered with all this kind of information, where to go, what to do, what if you're out of state, what if you're in state, where are the different polling places, et cetera. And they were very receptive to it. And we got a lot of feedback from students and people at the polls that there seemed to be quite a good turnout. We don't have the actual you know, numbers just yet. Our goal was to have to kind of reach that high water mark of 2018 again, when for us, it was 56.6% of all voting eligible students who voted. We wanted to meet or exceed that. We'll see what winds up happening. But there was a much greater element of worry and a kind of dread as to what might happen people being worried and concerned that perhaps there would be voter suppression efforts, which I have to say really did not materialize in this area. And nobody, whether Democrat or Republican, likes to see the, the idea of any of their people being turned away or hassled at polls. So there was some concern about that because there has been a wave of litigation, really mainly on the Republican side in the last several years, mostly trying to make voting less accessible to make it more difficult, although often under the guise of just trying to make elections more honest. That assumed that there was a problem with the honesty of elections, which I think there's been no evidence of. So there was that kind of fear and dread that maybe something would materialize, and it didn't. And so there was just, if nothing else, a sense of relief 
afterwards that, you know what, at least we got to do our jobs and students and citizens got to do their jobs. And that was you know, refreshing. Did you get a feel for the young people that you were dealing with in this role? What issues concerned them? Because it seemed like nationwide for younger voters, abortion was really at the top of the linear or at the top of the list. Could you get a feel for that or, or not really? Absolutely. There was a lot of concern about abortion rights on Swarthmore's campus, like you heard at many other campuses. I think inflation came up much less commonly. You have students who study economics. They know that inflation is a concern. They may not have laid the blame for it at the door of, let's say, the president or the governing party in the way that some citizens and some activists have, have prompted voters to do. But there was an ec- another economic issue, loan forgiveness. You know, students wanted more of that. Now, that's unsurprising as to whether that's good or bad for the economy long term. I don't think they were taking a stance. They felt that it was a necessary thing because too many of them were really uh, had a lot of debt or financial concerns for the future. So they're concerned with the future of the economy, just not so much short-term inflation. But there's no question that abortion was the primary one. And I would say also concern about climate change and concern about the ability of the government to regulate industry and to promote uh, climate positive solutions. That was also a big motivator for our students. What does it mean if this age group makes itself heard on a consistent level? Yeah, it's a huge question in terms of those who are jockeying for control of the Democratic Party. Right? And depending on what one's view of where the party should go is, that sometimes determines how one spins what just happened and what's been happening for the last several years. Give you an example of that. So what we know is the numbers of who turned out, 27% in this midterm, 31% in, in 2018. And we also know that the youth vote played a big role in a number of close races. John Fetterman's win here in Pennsylvania, right? 70% of young voters backed him and he won by a small margin. So some people are saying, well, young voters delivered Fetterman. So Fetterman owes them is the implication in a significant kind of way. On the other hand, you could also say that the youth vote was crucial in Donald Trump's 2016 victory, not because young voters voted for him, but because they didn't turn out to vote for Hillary Clinton. And yet you don't hear the same people who are crediting young people for the margin in Fetterman's win, and therefore the party should listen to them more. You don't hear those same people looking back and blaming young people for Hillary Clinton's loss in 2016. I think some of that depends upon where it is that folks want the party to go and whether they think that the issue is that young people largely advanced as priorities for them ought to be the Democrats' priority for the future. And yet there's a lot we don't know. That's such a common thing to say in political science, and yet it's just true. We're not we're not phenomenal forecasters. It's always the case that young people turn out to vote in lower numbers, lower percentages than other age groups. That's been the case since the 60s, since we had data on this kind of thing, on who you know what ages were voting. Even during the electoral upheaval and the social upheaval of 1968, Richard Nixon, right? 21 to 24 year olds turned out at 50%, which sounds like a lot, but it was over 70% for the rest of the population. And in midterm elections, even after they lowered the voting age to 18 in 1972, I think it was the first midterm because of the 26th Amendment in uh, 1971, that 18 year olds could vote, still midterm voting was quite low for young people, even though there was a lot of political consciousness. And a lot of people with Vietnam and other kinds of counterculture issues. So it's always been the case the young people have voted at lower rates. 
And so to assume that young people suddenly are going to grow and stay higher as a percentage of the electorate, well, that's that could happen, but it might not happen also. There's a lot of good historical reason to suggest that it won't. One of the things I think we got to look at is why did young people turn out the loan forgiveness? And we've also talked about abortion. Well, in 2018, there was a big galvanizing force. And that was the recent events of the 2016 election, which a lot of young people had sat out, and a lot of them did not like the results, Donald Trump winning. And so in 2018, again, a lot were chomping at the bits to be able to get in there and vote. 2020, Trump was also a motivator because a lot of young people wanted him out. In 2022, there was abortion as a big galvanizing factor. But without those things, what happens? Do young people go back to somewhat more dormant role? That's the big question. Do you think three straight election cycles of seeing higher youth turnout, one presidential, two midterm, do you think parties will start to bake that in? Or do you think they will expect it to revert to the mean? Well, I think they're going to have to take the temperature uh, of the electorate and do all kinds of polling and on the ground research as well. Parties are, are supposed to be responsive to actually who is both who's upset about what, who wants what, and how likely they are to turn out. I don't think it's going to be a given by any stretch of the imagination. I think that both parties would be wise to try to frame issues so that they appeal to the different groups that are important to them. And the Democrats ought to frame issues to make them sound like emergencies or things that excite fear and anger and desire for revenge. Because Matt, as much as we don't like to think it's the case, fear and anger and desire for revenge are much better motivators year in, year out of political participation than hope and optimism and love and idealism. I don't mean to say that I therefore endorse those things as great things to feel, but that's what gets people out. And in the absence of something unifying like that, it's not a given the young people will turn. You know, it's really interesting because we're noting that the young people who turned out at a fairly high rate for midterm elections, 27%, they definitely favor Democrats. Not quite two to one, but it was a significant margin. And yet it's not a monolithic group at all. So first of all, it's much more racially diverse than the young vote was in 2000, let's say, when really young people were no more likely to vote for Democrats than any other portion of the population was likely to vote for Democrats. It tended to be more white and male then, and now it's much more diverse. So that's one thing that's just different. And some people think, yes, that is going to make it behave differently down the line. And yet there's one other wild card that I don't hear a lot of people talking about. And that is that of the young people who responded to exit polls in this most recent midterm election, quite a lot of them, a surprising number, said that they didn't really identify with either political party. We know they voted disproportionately for Democrats, but lots of they didn't identify with either party. Now, you might think, well, does that mean that they're independents and therefore kind of moderates, like a lot of older voters, when they use that term that I'm not really with a party, they often mean I'm kind of torn between them. I'll alternate between parties as the situation and as the candidate dictates. I don't think there's a lot of evidence for that. I think there's a lot of evidence from other kinds of surveys and and information that we have that what a lot of young people mean when they say that they're not attached to either party is that they find themselves to the left of the Democratic Party, just like a lot of them did in 2016, when a certain number wanted Bernie Sanders as the candidate, and some said, that's it, I'm not going to vote if my candidate's not in. 
when some voted for Jill Stein, third party candidate, and that might sound insignificant, she won 1% of the vote, but her margin, what, what she won in Pennsylvania and Wisconsin, that was enough to flip those states and one other state as well. So they might go and do that, especially if there's not the kind of big galvanizing things that make some of them hold the nose and say, we're going to vote for the mainstream party no matter what. Because the party, as it presented itself in this recent election, this was not necessarily the AOC party. This was the party of the, Joe Biden was who we knew him to be. And Democrats were saying things that they had been saying. And John Fetterman, who did especially well, he actually did a really good job of reaching out to a lot of kind of middle America folks, although his positions were really often fairly progressive. He did a really good job of reaching out to lunch bucket and working class Pennsylvanians who aren't necessarily in step with all the values that the young people who wanted to vote for, let's say, Jill Stein or Bernie Sanders were for. So that's a really big thing to take into account. If you think that young people are there as a block, it's not necessarily the case that they're always going to vote Democratic. They might sit it out and therefore punish Democrats and cause them to lose for the short term, or they might push the party further to the left, but that's not a guaranteed win. That's only a win if the rest of the country is in step with those same values that are being pushed to the left. I'm not making a statement one way or the other about whether it's good for the Dems to be pushed to the left. I'm simply observing that if that's not in, in tune with the rest of the population of the older population and, and middle-aged, well, then the Dem Dems have quite a big problem again. So that's why I think it's not really clear what Democrats are going to do or should do in the face of this these few data points of uh, young voters turning out in several different elections in a row. We need to take a break. We will have more with Ben Berger after this. This is KYW News Radio In-Depth. And we are back on KYW News Radio In-Depth, continuing our conversation with Swarthmore College's Ben Berger. What would the approach be, you think, from a GOP that didn't get the results they wanted this election or they thought they were going to get across the board? And a big reason why is because of youth turnout in key battleground places. Sure. And, and you know, I say this now not to endorse one position or the other, just like I said about the Democrats. I'm simply going to say, as, as you were suggesting, if I were a Republican operative, just like if I were a Democratic operative, like I was talking before, I might take the following points from this, that there are portions of the youth vote that are very gettable and that were gotten, in fact. So white males were less likely to vote Democratic. They still voted Democratic more often than not in the youth segment, but much less so than young women. And also the Latino vote was more fragmented, just like it is at the larger level, because there are pockets that are either financially or uh, fiscally or socially conservative. So I would certainly want to go after those pockets. And the other thing that the GOP might well try to do, two things. One is not to welcome in new voters, but to try to block new voters, to try to, to make it more difficult for the young people to vote, just like they may try to do with, with certain other demographic groups. We've, we've seen in, in just in recent years, uh, in 2018 in Georgia, over 50,000 voter registrants, many of whom were black, were called pending. They weren't allowed to necessarily be registered because there were minor misspellings or missing hyphens and that sort of thing on the registration forms. Right, now, that was eventually overturned just days before the election. But that kind of thing, we've seen lots of things like that. And something that more affects the youth vote was like in Texas very recently. It was trying to say that you got to live at this long-term residence. 
and you can't be somebody who's just living for a short while at, at a res residence. And you can't move someplace and vote there with the intention of influencing an election. Well, it was very vague language. And a lot of people interpreted it as saying, well, wait a second, if I'm a college student and I live in that state, but I'm residing here, do, do I fall afoul of this? There was a little bit of clarifying language, but not nearly enough. Now, that was struck down by the Texas Supreme Court. But again, the intent was there. So I might try to do more of that, trying to dissuade people to vote. And if nothing else, if I'm a Republican operative, and if I don't think that outside of, let's say, the demographic groups of young white men and Latino voters, if I think that I, I, I'm going to have a difficult time otherwise, I might simply try to sow discord to encourage the left wing of the Democratic Party to be the dominant one. Donald Trump wanted to face Bernie Sanders. We don't know what would have happened in that outcome. But I think I would try to, in different ways, suggest that that is the future because it's the case that it will fragment the Democratic Party, the electorate. And that's what I think is probably a winning strategy for Republicans in the next you know, 20, 30 years or so, getting some to sit out if they don't like the outcome or having people vote for protest candidates, that sort of thing. I think it's more likely than them actually trying to woo young voters in, in big fashion. It's just fascinating that there is nothing on the GOP landscape that you would look at and really start to give young people to take a second look at the party? Well, number one is they could they could moderate. You could have more. That's like know, it's almost like that's not on the table. I guess that's what I'm saying. It's like, that's the difficulty. oh, yeah, there's that. Well, well, they could moderate, but that's just not going to happen. <laughs> it, it's the it's the difficult. You have someone like Mitch McConnell who has said some of the same things that some kind of libertarian academics like um, Brian Kaplan, very smart guy, sort of a, a libertarian economist who's written about political ignorance, lack of knowledge among voters. And he's drawn the conclusion from that, that since voters really don't know a lot about intricacies of, of policies and candidates and so on, it's not at all necessarily a good thing if more people vote, because you're going to get populist policies that are big and untidy and not really doable and catering to the kind of the lowest common denominator, even though they can't be, they can't actually actualize their promises. Well, Mitch McConnell has said some of the similar things like that. And saying that we're not going to try to go and we don't want to reach all voters because we don't think it's, for example, good fiscal policy. And we want to make good fiscal policy. One thing that could happen, and this is just it's going to happen or it's not, is if there's a time of plenitude. If you, if you have good economic times for a while and if Republicans can with any kind of plausibility say, well, this is the result of less government regulation. And now you've got jobs and you didn't have them before. That's going to placate some people. When things were good economically in the 90s, young people were much less likely to vote Democratic. And here I mean that they, they were about even. It was much closer to even with the rest of the population where young people were in terms of the Democratic Party. There were jobs. It was seen to be economic growth. In difficult times, they're less likely to, to buy that kind of argument. So what are you looking for going forward? Obviously, our next big election will be the presidential election 2024. What do you think will be the next, would it be the 2026 midterms where we might finally be able to say that, all right, this this age group, it's consistent now, it's close to a decade, we should probably figure that this is, is what it is? Well, kind of yes and kind of no. If it turns out that young voters close the gap between them and other voting blocks, the older voting blocks, middle-aged voter blocks, voting blocks. Well, then that's that's a really important thing. It hasn't happened that much. 
really more than the case that there have been periods when the young voters at the bottom has dropped out and then they've kind of caught back up. The other thing is that the young voters today are going to be somewhat older in a little bit and then somewhat older and somewhat older. The qu- one question is, will they get more conservative, as often happens with voters over time, as they have different kinds of responsibilities? Uh, this is what Republicans will sometimes say. That, and, but we certainly do know from data that people tend to get more conservative. Cohorts get more conservative as they get older. So one question is, will they still, will today's young people still vote the way they are today in 10 years when they're 10 years older? And that's an open question. And then another question is, will young voters continue to turn out? I think it's really more likely that absent a big motivating factor, we're going to see a somewhat of a dip again in midterm elections. Because really what drives voting behavior in the long term is habits. People get into habits of voting or not voting. Well, young people don't have the habit yet. They might develop it as young people and then keep it when they get older. And they also parenthetically tend to get more conservative during that time. But when they're 18 and 20, there is no habit yet. So projecting whether people who are now 14 and 16 are going to vote when they're 18 and 20, we don't know because they don't have the habit yet of doing it. A lot is going to depend upon the circumstances in which they find themselves. Is there a big motivating factor? Do they hate somebody who's in office and want revenge in some kind of way? Are they just kind of hopeful about something and they're therefore less likely to turn out? That's really a big part of the of the question. I'll tell you something. We've talked about strategies. Because I was so mortified and really deeply concerned by the polarization of the last number of years, and by the apparent different realities and different facts that voters, as well as you know, elected officials in different parties put forward. Because I'm so concerned about that, I am much more open to a kind of strategy that stresses coalition building and moderation. And I'm not telling people what they should vote or which position they should have. I'm talking about the wisdom for the strength of democratic institutions and for the larger long-term ability to get what you want somewhat in the long run, as opposed to having it all crash down. For that reason, I am less inclined to think it's a great idea for Democrats to say, well, the young people now, they are the AOC voters, and therefore we need to get more like AOC and risk losing the people who were the John Fetterman voters who came back over from Donald Trump, for example, right? who were the lunch bucket, former union kind of voters. I want to see where the coalitions are, and I want to try to push those buttons and try to bring as many young people with me as I can if I am that that person who cares about the long-term strength of democratic institutions. Now, that answer is not for everybody. There are progressives who call me a sellout in some kind of way. There are hardcore you know, Republicans who will say, well, we're never going to compromise. What can I say? I like democratic institutions, uh, and I like being able to stick around for the long haul. So that would be my take on this whole thing. And we're going to have to wait and see, is there a big motivating factor in the next both presidential and midterm election? What do you think leads to young people not voting for the most part? Once again, they're not a monolith, but, you know, as somebody who works on a campus, you know, helps try to get out the vote, you know, what do you hear? What do you think it is? Well, it's a funny thing, Matt, because this is true of a lot of American voters of all ages, too. What people will say to you and what they're actually doing and acting on are often two different things. Just like it was very difficult, for example, in Pennsylvania to project Donald Trump's victory in 2016 because it was said that a lot of people didn't really put that out there in polls. They didn't want to talk about it, but they actually went and voted for him. Likewise, if you talk to college-age students, they don't always 
say to you just what it is that's actually going to motivate them. In the last several elections, we had a very high percentage of people who said they intended to vote, over 80%, and then a lower percentage actually did vote. Now, that holds true in the rest of the population as well. It's not always 80% that say they're going to vote. So it wasn't the case, therefore, that a lot of people were saying, well, I'm not going to vote, and here's why. They tended to say, well, I am going to vote because I'm persuaded enough by these reasons. Of those who didn't vote, some who just think, well, it's just my one vote and what the heck, it's not going to make that big of a difference. As long as I said I was going to vote and I got the kind of political props, social props from my friends for doing that. And there is though a significant percentage, significant, who think, you know what, these parties don't represent me. I think the whole thing is corrupt. There's a lot of injustice that I see in the world today, and they haven't resolved that. And so why bother doing this? I'm going to wait until, and perhaps by waiting, I will discipline the parties to getting, putting candidates out that I like more. Now, that's a very risky strategy historically, and I wouldn't counsel it to most people, but it's motivating some people. I hear it from some folks. The local college group of the college Democrats is much smaller and much less active than it was six, eight years ago, much less so. Now, the students still voted at pretty high rates, and they tended to vote Democratic when they voted, but the people who identified, and we're in this group, the club, the college Republicans, college Democrat, much, much smaller and less active. And I think that's significant because far fewer people are identifying with a party. And that is ultimately actually the strategy I would take if I were a Democratic operative. I would try to say, here's what I want to do. I'm not simply going to look at which platform I think is likely to win with young voters in the next elections regardless whether those might resonate with other voters in the country. I want to try to take the voters who just voted for us, and I want to attach them to the institution of the political party in a two-party system and try to get people to understand that, you know what, you might not love this, but the alternative, like sitting it out or voting third party, the alternative and what you can get can be much, much worse than what you get by saying, I'm attached to this particular institution. This is what I'm going to vote with. I will get whatever I can through this party, and I'll realize that I won't get everything. A little bit like one of my favorite movies that's going to be all over the airways real soon. It's a Wonderful Life. You got to be George Bailey and see what Potter's Field would be like as opposed to Bailey Park if you weren't around. And this is what it would be like if you didn't have the Democratic Party as you as, as you knew it. And if you went the other and it might actually look a lot like the, the dystopian Potter thing. That's kind of the partisan in me talking. But that's the strategy I would take. And I think it's a little misguided for folks who simply want to look at, you got to push these issues hard because that's what the young people want and they're the future. That's it for this episode of KYW News Radio In-Depth. You can listen to the podcast free anytime on the Odyssey app and you can find it wherever you listen to your favorite shows. I'm Matt Leon and we'll have another episode out soon. 